Jason, the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology, celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. In its first month of operation in 1990, Jason received seven manuscripts. The editor and staff wondered if they would have enough content to fill future issues. Within just a few years, Jason attained top status in the field and has remained the highest-ranked peer-reviewed journal in nephrology and urology. Jason articles represent the best work in the field and inform and educate kidney specialists worldwide. Under the leadership of current editor-in-chief Eric Nielsen, MD, the journal continues its upward trajectory. In this episode of ASN Kidney News Podcast, and as part of the Society's commemoration of this important anniversary, ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim interviews Dr. Nielsen about what makes a good paper, how to choose the right journal, how authors can improve their writing, and how to write good reviews. Dr. Nielsen, when you first review a paper, what are some of the key elements of the paper that you try to find? I first read the uh, discussion section, then I read the introduction to try and uh, determine what the context of the paper is, and then I look very carefully at the results section. Usually by looking at the introduction and discussion, I get a feel for what the authors are trying to do with their work, and then I can look at the results and see how well they've done it. When you write papers, do you write papers in that same order? Well, when I write a paper, I write the results section first, and uh, that's what my fellows do. And uh, each time we have enough data for a figure, we create a figure and we write the results. And we start somewhere and we add both in front and behind that 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 figure uh, until uh, we decide we have a story. And uh, we stay very focused on the results section first. Then we write the introduction and, and discussion. And on average, how long does it take a fellow to learn how to tell the story of a research paper? Oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Uh, so you're still learning. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's stories and there are stories. And uh, one of the great complexities in all of this is that today it's much harder. It takes much longer period of time to do the, the technical work required of today's science. And so the number of papers a fellow can publish is generally reduced unless there are lots of collaborators helping. And as a consequence, the temptation is to chop up data into small little segments to, to get several papers as opposed to writing one really terrific story. And I think uh, we see that a lot, and it's a, it's kind of unfortunate. I understand it, but it's not, it's not a great way to do it for the reader. It creates obvious questions that need to be answered when when you don't get the full story in one sitting. As a journal editor and as a mentor, is your advice to fellows and to young investigators, it's better to publish or submit and then publish one very strong paper that tells the full story as opposed to a series of perhaps weaker papers? Oh, absolutely. You know, in the, in the bean counting world uh, where people are measured perhaps somewhat by the number of papers rather than the quality, temptation is, is to do otherwise, but I think I always think that's a mistake. And uh, quite honestly, the better the story, the, the better the chance of finding a, a high-profile journal to publish it. I want to stay on the fellows topic. As you're mentoring fellows and helping them develop their skills as writers of articles for submission to peer-reviewed journals, are there other tips that you provide them? If I take all the fellows I've known, I can divide them into two groups, those that love to write and those that don't. And the ones that don't, uh, never, even if they're technically 
brilliant and uh, have great ideas never really find the traction they need to succeed because they don't like to tell a story and, and put it down. And so I, I encourage fellows to write something every day, even if it's just a paragraph. They may be writing a review on the, on a subject that they're terribly interested in, or they may be working on on their research, but they should practice writing every day and begin to see it as part of their normal life experience as an academician. I think if you do that, what you end up with after a few years is someone who gets good at these sorts of things and comes to enjoy it. And sometimes it's grant writing, sometimes it's paper writing, but it's always something. And most people aren't born to write well. It takes a long time. How important is, is reading? And do you encourage people, do you have almost a reading list of, of well-written articles, well-structured journals that you ask young investigators to read to help sort of develop the skills as a writer? Not really. I think uh, I think it's important to read outside your field. It's important to go to meetings outside your field. You get little snippets of things going on elsewhere that sometimes have tremendous influence on uh, your subject and your, your your particular passion. And so, uh, you know, having breadth of reading, it's very important. I mean reading in very, very high-quality, high-profile journals. I think if you find information in, in those journals of interest, uh, you start reading them regularly, and what you come to realize is the production values in those journals is high, and the writing is quite good. And you always learn something about sentence structure and storytelling in that in that regard. I guess as I'm thinking about the aspect of a researcher being a storyteller, how do they incorporate comments that they would get from reviewers? So if reviewers provide significant comments to an article and it's asked to be revised, how do they address those issues? Well, when I when I talk about storytelling, I'm not talking about fiction. I'm talking about nonfiction and and. Storytelling is how you lay out your story, how you're going to put all your little pieces of information together and so that so that there's a coherent logic to it and uh, people can follow your argument. And many times not following that argument gets you into trouble and produces questions from reviewers that are needless uh, simply because you've told something in the wrong order, in the wrong way, or you've gone off on a tangent. You know, when you get these comments, you have to adapt them to the storyline that you've laid out for your work and, and the kind of conclusions you're going to draw from all of this. I don't think that's terribly difficult. Uh, most most reviewers don't want a completely different story after, out of the results. What are some of the other potential mistakes that an author would make with a submission? Well, they might submit it to the wrong journal for the wrong reasons. I'm kind of curious as a mentor how you help people identify the right journals. I mean, is there any suggestions you would have there? Again, it's after you read the draft of the manuscript, you get a sense of how deep a story this is and how novel it is and how impactful it will be. And those, those kind of uh, determinations usually define where you start. Of course, you can't publish in a great journal unless you submit it, so you have to you have to really think about it, but it is uh, something that does require some thought. You have to have a sense of, do we have enough here to write about something interesting? Sometimes papers, as I said, are too small or or the story is uh, incomplete and uh, everyone knows it and it's going to be obvious to everyone. Well, you know, you can do the additional experiments now or you can do them later. 
but you'll end up having to do them. So, you know, one of the most important things I, I, I ask of papers and fellows write is, uh, does it answer the so what question? Something I learned from uh, my own mentors when I was starting out, and I would sit down and tell them about this great experiment that I was doing and how exciting it was. And one of the great scientists in America who happened to be one of my mentors uh, would sit there and listen. And then when I was done, he'd say, so what? It's a startling question, but it's actually the, one of the most important questions you can ask about your work. It, it keeps you focused on trying to be incremental and novel. And so what means, what's the next experiment? What is what is going to happen? What is the, the natural history of this line of inquiry? And uh, if it's not important enough to do a second kind of experiment, then it's probably not terribly important to publish in the first place. And, of course, it's nice to ask that question before you start a whole bunch of experiments because you can focus the direction you're going a little bit better. But answering the so what question is a ter terribly important part of deciding where you're going to send a paper and how big it's going to be and who is going to appreciate reading it. So is, is someone is thinking about submitting a paper and they're looking at different journals, one of the one of the ways they measure the journals is the impact factor. And so I guess I have sort of a two-part question. One is just your own feelings about the impact factor. And then the second question would really be, um, are there, you know, what are some of the other ways that you measure the, the importance of a journal? There are lots of different ways. Uh, the impact factor is it's here. We have to deal with it. There are lots of other other kinds of indices people, you know, talk about measuring H factors and uh, and and the, the site how we cite things. And uh, of course, the impact factor is an obvious con construct to to measure short term effects of a paper and um and of course it may take a while for uh for an idea to seep through the literature in many many different directions cuz not all disciplines read each other's work and so by the time someone catches an idea and puts it to their own additional experimentation it may take years and you would miss an impact or impact factor effect the impact factor is calculated in a funny way. So, for example, Jason's impact factor, new impact factor, will come out this summer. That's uh, 2010, but the impact factor is for 2009, and the 2009 impact factor is calculated on the number of citations in 2007 and 2008. So there's only two years in which citations will affect the 2009 impact factor reported in 2010. So it's a very delayed effect, and as journals change over time, you can imagine the effect uh, will take quite a while to establish itself. So this, the current editorial board at Jason won't own, fully own their impact factor until 2011, and that will be the 2010 impact factor that affects 2008 and 2009. So you can see um, that the impact factor is a delayed kind of effect, but the trend of the impact factor in a journal's life can be revealing, and um, you know, if you're a very competitive journal, perhaps a, a short time frame in which to measure impact is uh, that is by citations is possible. But for most journals, it's not. I mean, there's only 25 biomedical journals with uh, an impact factor greater than 16, and I mean biomedical life science journals, general science journals. So, you know, there's
1,800 journals out there. So most people who are working on journals and trying to make them better probably don't have a huge chance to grow their impact factor, and so they don't think about it. I think competitive journals think about it a little bit more. It's also affected by the size of the discipline, that is, by the pool of citable authors. In a discipline where there's lots of different aspects to science, but the author pool is small, the citation rate can't be very high. If you're looking at competitive cancer journals, well, there's tens of thousands of investigators, and they'll all cite things. The same is true in cardiology and uh, cardiovascular disease. If you look at nephrology, the pool is much smaller, and therefore uh, the number of citable authors is, is going to go down. So the, the question is, can any journal in a subspecialty really get a very, very high impact factor? And, and it's not clear that that's possible. Most of the very best subspecialty journals have impact factors in the low to mid-teens. As the editor of the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology, how do you select reviewers? I don't. Uh, unless I'm unless I'm handling a paper, uh, but I will usually look in our reviewer pool. I will look at our our, our manuscript central. We'll pull up based on keywords reviewers who uh, have familiarity with the uh, subject matter and uh, have previously reviewed, and uh, and we'll pick from them. If someone were interested in becoming a reviewer, I'm just sort of kind of curious as to, I mean, I would imagine that one of the real challenges of editing a journal is having a pool of people who can be helpful in looking at papers and being thoughtful both in providing suggestions back to the authors, but also helping to select papers that are appropriate. I'm struggling with how you identify or how people could kind of become part of that pool. Well, the first thing you have to do is uh, register yourself in Manuscript Central, which uh, you do through the JSON website. So if you go, say you wanted to submit a paper or make your, make yourself available to review, you go to the, the Manuscript Central part of JSON's website, and in the upper right-hand corner, there's a, a thing called New User Question Mark, and you'd register yourself. And in that registration, you would list all your areas of expertise. That's the quickest way to come up regularly in lists of keyword identified individuals who may be qualified to look at papers. The other way is to have division leaders in, in your own uh, nephrology divisions um, let associate editors know about the availability of certain people, and that particularly in targeted areas of special interest, and that often uh, produces uh, some new reviewers who are used and, and tried out. Uh, those are Those are the two basic ways. In addition to being responsive and you know meeting the deadline for a review, what are what are some of the other characteristics of a good reviewer? People who are careful, people who um, can identify important things that have to be addressed in the current work to make it better. Sometimes those things don't exist. The papers are pretty good generally, though almost everything we get adjacent goes to at least one revision many times too, until there's agreement amongst the authors and the reviewers that that the story is, is ready to go. You know, we have some reviewers who have long lists of nitpicky things that, you know, are, are fine, but they're not terribly helpful to the author. I generally like reviewers who um, can address some important questions uh, and let the authors figure out how to do the experiment as opposed to dictating the terms of it. But that's just me. Uh, every All the editors have different views on this. So when the person gets back the comments, how would you encourage them to, to consider the comments that they get from reviewers? Well, they're advisory. 
the editors will tell you whether they're interested in seeing a revision or not. It's not up to the reviewers. It's up to the editors. The, the reviewers are advisory to the editors, and many times, you know, in highly competitive journals, uh, all the reviewers will like a paper, and the editor won't for some reason. We won't ask to see it again. Right now, Jason publishes about 15 to 16% of the material it receives. So we triage within a week, uh, usually within a couple of days, probably 65% of the material we get. And then we review the other 35%, thinking that we'll publish about half of it. And that helps uh, focus everybody on, on uh, what we think is the best material for the journal. But in, in very, very competitive journals, it's... Uh, the taste of the editor editors uh, has a huge effect on uh, how well the paper does in, in subsequent uh, revision. As you look at, at medical publishing and, and think about your career and, and, and then your role now as, as an editor, what do you see as some of the future evolutions and trends? I mean, what are some things that you think will fundamentally change medical publishing as we know it today? Lots of people just want to look at selective parts of the literature. And so um, search programs that extract, you know, interests that uh, a reader has are becoming increasingly popular. I think those are uh, not terribly um, illuminating as it relates to the rest of what's going on in science. So the risk is that you become very much an idiot savant and uh, rather than having a broad breadth of, of what's going on, I think great journals provide a variety of uh, subject matter in each issue that informs you about things you didn't think you might be interested in, but because they were done extremely well, you now are. And uh, that's, that's part of the characteristic of a great journal. I still think people will be interested in table of contents, selective reading. Um, paper will last uh, as long uh, until people figure out how to do advertising on uh, on the web. And, uh, you know, that's probably the greatest holdup. You know, I suspect uh, libraries and many medical centers will become digital almost entirely. And uh, I rarely go to the library now because I can get everything online. So, you know, that's just the nature of it. But it's also generational. In, in the next, the, the generation now that's finishing their nephrology training is going to do this very differently than an older generation. So you've mentioned sort of websites that aggregate information, and you've talked about sort of the, the fact that, that all you know the articles are now available online. And thinking about those, and as an editor, do you think you'll change? I mean, do you think the fundamental structure of research articles will change as a result of those trends? Well, I don't know. I mean, once you take the paper cost of publishing out, the length of articles becomes less relevant, although we adjacent try and keep our articles under 3,000 words simply because it's hard to tell a great story when you when you have unlimited page length. Pithiness is a virtue, and, uh, and I think readers want to get to punchlines and see how a, a paper is put together in a much shorter sitting than uh, many journals who publish very long articles. You know, that's always an issue, and uh, every journal will have its own characteristics and its own taste as it relates to that. Generally, I think less is more, but not everybody agrees. But then again, it's also a question of whether your journal is more archival or more current. And uh, when when paper and publishing, as it is today, uh, is so cost-intensive, you'd like to c 
create a variety in your journal, and, and that variety is attenuated by having articles that are too long. So we can publish more different things if people can keep the, the length of their papers or if the journal sets the length of the paper to uh, something that is long enough to get all the important information out, but not so long that people are bored. As an editor, you see a lot of research come in, and you have probably the best view of what the community is doing scientifically. And do you feel like there are gaps? Um, are there areas that are not getting enough attention? Are there areas that are getting too much attention? I'm just sort of curious as to your worldview of research and nephrology. Everybody has their pet interests in um, the kinds of things that interest them. And if they're done exceptionally well, they're going to get published in high-profile journals. Based on the kind of material that, that we see at Jason, uh, people are very interested in uh, all the ramifications of renal progression. They're very interested in acute kidney injury. They're very interested in development and uh, how, how uh, <clears throat> the kidney forms and is modified by various uh, molecular interactions. Um, there's uh, a lot of interest in uh, epidemiology and uh, outcomes, uh, clinical trials. People are still doing clinical trials and doing very good clinical research, and, and we're happy to publish some of that. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different things there, but they, they and, and certainly, um, you know, then there are fields that can get very, very, very technically um, specialized, and there are certain aspects of uh, physiology or biochemistry that uh, answer important questions that fill a gap but are just too narrow for a journal that has a general readership. And those are always difficult because they're usually very well done studies that answer mm -hmm. a question. And so, you know, there are things that the editors like and dislike about the pool of papers that, that we look at. And uh, a lot of it has to do with study design and the kind of question that is asked. But if you take Jason, for example, I think Things in the, in the design that wouldn't be that interesting to the editors are studies that uh, provide just a simple description that fail to answer a good question. Sometimes the study is sort of a, a me-too investigation that doesn't really provide any incremental finding. Uh, sometimes people want to describe a new genetically modified mouse or, or fish that duplicates previous work in other fields, that's, that's not terribly interesting. People don't uh, sometimes extend the field of interest because they don't provide a mechanism. They just show the observation. And, you know, that mechanism is, is really, really important. <clears throat> sometimes uh, people don't provide a new understanding of how a gene or protein works that they've described. And we see a lot of studies where uh, Genetic mutations, linkages, or associations provide no insight into a disease, or more importantly, aren't validated in other cohorts, and uh, it's very hard to know what to do with those. Sometimes we see articles that really don't affect clinical judgment or clinical practice. Uh, the editors generally aren't that interested in, in that. And sometimes, as I said, a finding may be just too narrow that it's unlikely to be highly cited and, and journals pay a little bit of attention to that. You know, the, the field of epidemiology is uh, is continuing to grow. A lot of these studies are observational, but uh, I think one of the biggest problems in, in some of these observational cohorts is the uh, this, this problem of immortal time bias, uh, which uh, even the editors and, uh, and the reviewers have a hard time catching. But it, 
plagues a lot of things that we see. And uh, immortal time bias uh, explains the suggestion that uh, popes seem to live longer than artists or Oscar winners live longer than non-winners. But in general, such individuals uh, have to survive long enough to be pope or to win an Oscar, whereas their peers have no minimum survival requirement. And so, you know, you, you introduce certain kind of biases in all of this. So immoral time bias is really uh, a problem of where a span of a cohort follow-up during which, because of the exposure definition, the outcome under study could not occur. We, we have papers like this, and we just... We struggle with this all the time. We have recently had a paper where uh, patients who underwent uh, transplantation nephrectomy, allograft nephrectomy after their transplant failed, uh, seemed to have a, a seemed to live longer than those who didn't. But uh, the patients who underwent allograft nephrectomy could not experience the outcome death prior to the nephrectomy. That is, they had to survive long enough to undergo nephrectomy in order to be considered part of the nephrectomy group. In contrast, the patients in the non-nephrectomy group could die at any time after the first day of graft failure. So, <clears throat> you know, there's there's a lot. This is a very very complicated subject, but it, it just uh, is really a, an important part of, of what we're starting to see in epidemiology as, as it relates to good study design and things that that we can ultimately interpret. So, is that I'm just trying to think about how an author could address. The immortal time bias. Well, you can do that by by using time varying Cox regression models with uh, time variables. There are lots of ways of doing it. The problem is failing to recognize it and then addressing it. And uh, you know, this seems like a, a small thing, but actually, it's, it seems to be getting worse in terms of uh, either the authors not recognize it in their initial study design, or the reviewers missing it. And so, uh, it's uh, one of those things that have a great effect on how you interpret a study. And people are terribly interested in, in a lot of these kinds of observations. They're hypothesis generating, of course, so they're not complete in and of themselves, but they uh, they do tend to uh, spawn interest in doing certain kinds of clinical research and certain kinds of trials, so that they do matter. The federal government is in the process of making a huge investment in comparative effectiveness research. and. From what I can tell, nephrology or kidney disease um, is perhaps not positioned as well as other communities or diseases to receive this funding. Why do you think that is? Why is there not as much comparative effectiveness research in, in nephrology? I don't know, but I think if you're not passionate about the subject matter, the research won't get done. And uh, so you have to have that passion first, and then... Uh, then you have to be trained in comparative effectiveness. It's not it's not the kind of research anybody can do. But we have some great databases and great pools of patients in which to do comparative effectiveness research. And uh, it's the problem of, uh, of uh, particularly in the area of diagnostic testing. Uh, there are some really great new things, but people also keep doing older tests, and you know it's it's too costly to do that. So yeah, this this will turn out to be very important, and nephrology is a great place to study it. Particularly in the dialysis population, you have very well um, enumerated databases uh, for, for this kind of work. ASN Kidney News is a publication of the American Society of Nephrology. The ideas and opinions expressed by participants in ASN Kidney News podcasts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the society. To lead the fight against kidney disease, ASN helps its 11,000 members provide high quality care to patients 
conduct cutting-edge research, and educate the next generations of kidney care professionals. To learn more about ASN or Kidney News, please visit the Society's website at asn-online.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.